Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Hey, thanks. One person is glad to see me this morning. So that's good. We got one. Uh, Welcome to the guests who are here with us today. Very glad that you are here with us. Let's pray, shall we, as we turn to God's Word this morning. God, we thank you and we praise you this morning, and we just ask for your help in these moments now. We ask and pray for your Holy Spirit to be present and at work uh, among us. Lord, we want to see your Son, Jesus Christ, glorified and exalted today. And Lord, we also want to live in a way that glorifies him. So we pray for those two ends that you would work in us today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, like Pastor Mark said, today is the start of Holy Week when we celebrate the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for our good and for God's glory. In fact, though, every Sunday, every Lord's Day, is a celebration of Christ's redemptive work through his death and resurrection. Every Sunday we gather together and we celebrate that. We have a a feast and fellowship time and we worship because we want to praise Jesus Christ for the work he has done. Amen? But this week we especially want to hone in on this. It is a joyful celebration of what Christ has done. Now, we've put together a little devotional guide for you. We sent that out in an email. If you didn't get a copy and you want a copy, there's one, uh, a few copies over on the resource table. That is there to help you as an individual or as a family to worship Jesus Christ. It's designed to help take you through the events each day of the Holy Week. It's not designed necessarily for you to do absolutely everything in there, If you're using it for family worship, my suggestion would be that you read through it in advance and pick and choose the parts that work best for your family, depending on how old your kids are and so forth. So that is there for you if if you like. That's just a tool. But today is Palm Sunday, like we said, and we want to focus in on Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to look at the history of this event as John records it in his gospel. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And glory, we're going to see glory is one of the key themes in this chapter uh, that ties the events together. And I want to show you that before we dive into God's Word. So the, the disciples did not understand the triumphal entry until after Jesus was glorified, verse 16. When the Greeks show up, it prompts Jesus to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, verse 23. Then Jesus prays that the Father would be glorified through him, and God says, I have glorified myself, and I will glorify myself again, verse 28. Then uh, John says that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. That famous passage from Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John tells us Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw the glory of the Lord Jesus, verse 41. And then we read that there were some people, uh, some authorities who believed, but they would not openly confess Christ because they loved man's glory more than they loved the glory of God. Glory is woven through this whole passage of Scripture. 
Jesus is glorified through his death and resurrection. And his work leads us to glorify him as well. That is the message for us. Glorify King Jesus. Simple, straightforward. Glorify Christ the King. How do we do that, though? As we walk through the history recorded in John's Gospel, we're going to see four responses to King Jesus, and each response will help us to glorify the King. Hail him, follow him, trust him, confess him. Those four responses enable us to glorify Jesus. So first, hail Jesus, the humble King. We see this in verses 12 through 19. To hail someone means to, to welcome them with uh, honor and praise, with, with uh, shouts, enthusiastic approval. But to hail a king means more than that. It also means joyful submission to the king in recognition of his authority. And that is what's happening as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Just to sort of remind us of where we're at and to set the scene, Jesus has come to Bethany where Lazarus was, who he just raised from the dead, and they threw a party, a dinner party for Jesus, and uh, these crowds of people who had heard about what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead came to this dinner party in Bethany because they wanted to see Jesus and Lazarus, verse 9, John 12, verse 9. And because of Lazarus, many, many people were believing in Jesus Christ. They saw the sign that Jesus did. They're believing in him. And of course, the Pharisees respond as they always do, it seems. They're like the mafia. They're like, I know what we'll do. We'll kill Lazarus. John 12, verse 11. So we pick up the history in verse 12, John 12, verse 12. It says, the next day, that is the day after this dinner party, this is Sunday, this large crowd had come to the feast. This is the Passover feast. Uh, Some say that the population of Jerusalem went from 30,000 people and swelled to as many as 180,000 people. People from all over came for the Passover feast. So there's a large crowd in Jerusalem, and they heard that Jesus is coming. They heard Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So I want you to try to picture what's happening here. There's already a large crowd with Jesus in Bethany. They were there for that dinner party. They've been following Jesus. Now there's a whole nother crowd in Jerusalem who hears that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and they leave Jerusalem to go out to meet him. So you've got these two crowds who have joined together on the way into town, and they are shouting repeatedly, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They are hailing Jesus as their king instead of Caesar. Jesus is the king. They're laying down these palm branches on the road. They're giving Jesus a royal welcome. It's like they're rolling out the the red carpet for Jesus. But they didn't understand exactly what kind of king Jesus really is. So he does something to try to help them. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this is a deliberate move by Jesus. Uh, We know from the other gospels that Jesus sent two of his disciples to get this donkey and bring it to him. But what's going on here? Understand this. Jesus walks everywhere. He's covered hundreds of miles over all kinds of rough terrain. Now he's two miles from Jerusalem. Why the sudden need to ride a donkey? It's not because he can't physically walk the last two miles to Jerusalem. He chooses to come this way into Jerusalem because he's making a statement about his identity as the Messiah. Jesus is saying, I'm the king that Zechariah foretold. Well, what kind of king is that? We just read Zechariah 9, 9 through 17 that describes this king. And Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king is righteous, and he brings salvation with him. That's why his coming is reason to rejoice greatly and to shout out loud. This king is humble. He's mounted on a donkey. Now, it's not, it's not unusual for a king to ride a donkey, but kings only rode donkeys in times of peace. This king is going to bring peace. Verse 10 tells us that he cuts off the weapons of war, and he speaks peace to the nations. He brings salvation, and his rule is going to be from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. He's not just the king of Israel then. He's the king of all the nations. He's bringing salvation for all people. And verse 11 says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What's the waterless pit? It's a well that doesn't have any water in it. And sometimes they would use it as a prison. We see that in the Bible. That's what Joseph's brothers did to him, right? So this is a picture of being in prison, being in bondage. And this king is going to set those prisoners free by the blood of his covenant. That's an awesome picture of what Jesus came to do in setting us free from bondage to sin and death. But the crowds, and not not even the disciples fully understood this in the moment. John writes very candidly in verse 16. Look there with me. He says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, it's not going to be until after the resurrection, after Jesus shows uh, how all of the Old Testament points to him that they understood. But John is trying to help us out. He's trying to help us make the connection here that they didn't see at the time, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is this humble king who is going to triumph over God's enemies and bring salvation and peace both to Israel and the nations. He's going to do that, though, through his death and resurrection, which establishes the new covenant in his blood. Jesus took the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. He suffered and died, taking the wrath of God in our place for our sins so that we might have peace with God. That is the ultimate peace that he brings. He brings forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believe 
in him. That's the wonder of his kingship at this moment in history. The wonder of his kingship is that he comes to save sinners, not slaughter them. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes again, and that day he's going to be riding a white war horse with an iron rod in his hand, and on that day the offer of salvation will be over. But right now is the day of salvation. That offer of salvation is still open and available to anyone who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. Now is the day of salvation. Believe in him. I just love John 12, 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. I just think about this for a minute. Think about being there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Open the tomb. Jesus, he's been dead for days. It's going to stink. Uh, open it up. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, comes out of the tomb. They see this. He raises the dead to life. And they can't stop talking about it. They can't stop saying, this Jesus can bring the dead to life. And verse 18, in fact, tells us that the whole reason the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Verse 18. Now, Jesus did many signs that John recorded so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you might have life in his name, John 20, 31. And when we tell others what Christ has done, we glorify him and we help other people come to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus knew the Pharisees were trying to kill him. They knew that. That's why he'd been moving about secretly. John 11, verses 53 and 54. But now, at this point, Jesus has no intention of slipping into Jerusalem unnoticed. The crowds are hailing him as king, and Jesus deliberately does something that says, this is the kind of king I am. The time of secrecy is over. Jesus is embracing his kingship, and we have to embrace it as well. The application for us is to recognize Jesus is the king and to respond accordingly. Hail King Jesus. It means you honor him and praise him joyfully, enthusiastically for who he is and what he's done. He's a righteous king with, with salvation, with humility. He leaves his throne in heaven and he comes and he dies to save us. We see him, we hail him, we praise him, we honor him, but... Hailing him means more than that. It means joyfully submitting to, you, to him as the rightful king of your life. Jesus is king. I am not. Jesus is king. I'm not. There's a battle going on for the kingship of your life. Who's going to sit on the throne of your heart, of your mind? Will it be yourself or King Jesus? Will you be king or will Christ? You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are also submitting to him, to his rule as your king. Now, you're going to say to me this morning, yeah, I know, I, I get it, I get it, I get this, Michael, I've heard this before. You'll say, yes, Jesus is my king. Well, that means loving your enemies. I don't want to do that. Is he the king? 
oh yeah, Jesus is my king. That means giving sacrificially. Oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. Is he your king? Oh yes, Jesus is my king. Well, that means you can't sleep with your girlfriend, but I want to. Is he your king? Oh yeah, Jesus is my king. That means obeying his commands even if you don't want to. Otherwise, you're just kidding yourself. We are ruled by Christ, not our feelings. To have Christ as your king means submitting every aspect of your life to his rule. So what area of your life needs greater submission to Christ the king? Hail the king. Praise him because he's worthy. Amen? But obey him joyfully as well. When we do that, we glorify the king. Now, the, frust- uh, the Pharisees are frustrated because they can't stop Jesus. Verse 19 says, they said to one another, you see, we're, we're gaining nothing here. Look, the whole world has gone after him. There's some irony here because Jesus really did come to save the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, John 3, 16 and 17. So there's some irony here in what the Pharisees are saying. And so it's so fitting. Look at the next verse. Look at what verse 20 says. Some Greeks come seeking Jesus. You remember Zechariah's prophecy? He's the king for the nations. His rule is to the ends of the earth. So point two, we see follow Jesus, the servant king. We're going to see this in verses 20 through 26. But first look at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are God-fearing Gentiles. We know that because they came to worship. They've heard about Jesus and they want to meet with him. They want to talk with him. Verse 21, so they, these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, John doesn't tell us whether or not Jesus actually met with them and talked with them or not. Instead, John hones in on Jesus' response, and his response tells us what it means for himself. Jesus responds saying, this means something for me. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The coming of these Greeks is a signal for Jesus that his climactic hour has come. Up until this point, the hour has been future. They've tried to arrest him. They couldn't because his hour had not yet come. But now the hour had come. It was time for him to be glorified. It was time for his death and resurrection to glory. That means salvation for both Jews and Gentiles alike in this new covenant community through faith in Christ. Jesus sees these Greeks coming to him, and he knows it's time for him to open up the way of salvation to all people, to the Gentiles, so that he can unite Jew and Gentile as one people of God in himself. But to do that, he's going to have to die. It requires his death. Life will only come through death. And Jesus gives an illustration to explain this using wheat. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's like a a kernel of wheat that falls from the head. It falls to the ground, right? If it goes into the ground and it dies, it germinates, then it grows up again, bringing this great crop 
Jesus is saying, like that wheat seed, I am going to die. I'm going to go into the ground, and from that death is going to come this great harvest of life. Anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That's why he's glorified. Now notice this, the path to life, to glory, to fruitfulness is through self-sacrifice. And Jesus takes this principle and he applies it to every one of us, all of his followers. We have to follow the pattern of Christ, the cross before the crown. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, essentially, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what he says in Mark 8. But look at how he says it here in verses 25 and 26. Whoever loses his, or sorry, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does Jesus mean when he says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it, and if you hate your life in this world, then you will keep it to eternal life? What is he talking about? Jesus is speaking in absolute terms. He's using hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point here. Whoever loves his life, he's saying, if you elevate self, self above God, making an idol of yourself, that is what leads to your ruin. That is the heart of sin and rebellion against God. It's seeking your own way. That is the culture that we live in. It's all about me, what I feel, what I desire. In our day, everything must give way to self. Even truth and reality has to give way to self. Where self and Christ differ, the modern psychological man says Christ must be rejected in order to keep the self. That leads to ruin. When Jesus says, hate your life in this world, this too is hyperbole. He means that you us to, we are to think so much of God, to honor Him and, and think so much of Him, to put Him above ourselves so that by comparison, our life in this world is not that important to us because life's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. He's saying you value Christ so far above yourself that you are willing to do or sacrifice anything for him. Where self and Christ differ, the Christian says, self must be rejected. It's the exact opposite of the world. The constant focus on self is replaced with a desire to do God's will. We surrender to God's will like Jesus. Jesus was so surrendered to God's will that he was even willing to die. That's what Jesus is saying here. Choose the way of the cross and die to self. It means self-denial and self-sacrifice for the good of others and the glory of God. 
By this we are sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. Now, death to self is hard. Indeed, it's impossible apart from the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And yet, even in the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit for Christians, it's still hard. Amen, somebody. So Jesus gives us this glorious promise and assurance here as encouragement to us for those who follow Christ. And the glory more than compensates for the sacrifice. If you sacrificially serve Jesus Christ, you know that your life will not be spent in vain. Just like Jesus' death was not in vain, but led to a great Uh, bore great fruit, so if you live your life in service to Christ, it will not be in vain. It will bear much fruit. In the same way, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I give you eternal life. Jesus outgives us, more than compensates for what we give in sacrifice to him. It's like the guy who went out, he saw this field, and in the field was a treasure, and he went out and he, in his joy, he sold everything that he had and bought that field so that he could have the treasure. It's because the treasure of Christ is worth more than anything else. More, there's more. Jesus says, if you serve me and follow me in this way, then you will be with me where I am, and the Father will will honor you. We will be with Christ in heaven forever, and God the Father will honor you. This is the glory that comes from God, verse 43. Jesus stacks up all of this as assurance and encouragement, these promises to us on this path that he calls us to follow. So the question is, will you, who are you going to live for? Yourself Or Jesus, if you follow Jesus Christ, the servant king, you will glorify him. Third, trust Jesus, the conquering king. We see this in verses 27 through 36. So the Greeks have come, and Jesus realizes, okay, my hour has come. And he knows that that means he's going to die. His crucifixion is, is coming, and it greatly distresses him. And so he prays. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. This is a strong verb here. It means to be frightened, to be terrified, to be repulsed. Jesus sees the cross, and in his humanity, he is deeply distressed. He's in anguish. And so he prays, again, showing us how do we live, how do we walk this path as we face trials, we see it, and we pray. He prays just like, or very similar to what he prays in Gethsemane. He says, Father, save me from this hour. And like he prays in the garden, he prays in surrender to God's will. He prays, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's his all-consuming passion, his aim in life. It's what drives everything that he does. It's the glory of God. He wanted God to be glorified in his life no matter the cost. Listen, Jesus is asking us to follow him. If we're going to follow him, then that means 
our all-consuming aim should be the glory of God, no matter the cost. Amen? Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I glorified it in your life and ministry, and I'm going to glorify it in your death and resurrection. Some of the people in the crowd, they say, oh, it thundered. Others said, no, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. And they didn't understand fully what, what was happening, but God affirms that he is going to glorify his name through the death of his son. What does it all mean? Jesus unpacks it in verses 31 and 32. Jesus, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. He clarifies it's going to be crucifixion. He's going to be raised up on the cross. And he emphasizes three things. His death and resurrection in glory means judgment on this world. His death and resurrection in glory means the ruler of this world is cast out. In his death, Jesus defeats the devil. He delivers to him a crushing blow. The promise that was made in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head is coming to fruition now. Jesus is the dragon slayer. Satan is defeated. And number three, his death and resurrection and glory results in Jesus drawing all people to himself. Not all people without exception, but all kinds of people without distinction. People from all nations. The judgment of the world, the defeat of Satan, the drawing of people from all nations happened when Christ died and rose. It's not going to be completed until he returns, but that decisive step was taken on the cross as a turning point in redemptive history. But the crowd is confused. They don't like the sound of this because they wanted Messiah and they expected Messiah to reign forever, to rule forever. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crowd understands some of what Jesus is saying. They understand that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah because they preface their question saying, hey, wait a minute, the law says the Christ, i.e. the Messiah, is going to remain forever, right? So they connect those two dots. They also understand that the Son of Man being glorified and lifted up has something to do with his death. And they're like, wait a minute, who is this Son of Man? What kind of Messiah is this? One who dies this is the question that thoughtful Jews will be asking after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This is a key question that needed to be answered for them. See, they saw Jesus as king, but they didn't see him as suffering servant from Isaiah 53. His mission was misunderstood by most people. Most people were hoping that he's going to throw off Roman rule and establish national Israel, the nation of Israel. See, with the Passover, the Passover is this celebration of what God did in bringing his people out of Egypt. It's this great deliverance. And now they have this Messiah figure that's here, and they connect these things, and they're hoping that Jesus is going to be the one who delivers them from Roman rule. They can't see the need for Jesus' suffering and death. They can't see how God does this for the nations, not just for Israel. They don't see that yet. The point is, is that Jesus is not 
the Messiah that they expected. He's not the political savior that they were hoping for. He's the spiritual savior that they desperately needed, whether they realized it or not. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little bit longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Turn to Jesus in faith, lest the darkness overtake you. Jesus conquers the darkness, sin, death, and the devil. Turn to Jesus and believe in him, lest the darkness master you, master your life. Believe in him and be saved. Trust this conquering king who by his death judges the world, casts out the devil, and draws all people to himself. Who is Jesus? Who is this son of man? That's the key question. But it makes me want to ask the question, which Jesus are you worshiping? Which Jesus are you looking for? Are you looking for political Jesus? Are you looking for Jesus to bring you that? Are you looking for, for the Jesus to bless my health and wealth? Or are you following the Jesus who calls you to come and die? The Jesus who calls you to suffering and death on his behalf that you may find eternal life in him. Which Jesus? Is it the real Jesus? that you worship? Or is it a king of your own making? Fourth and finally, I will summarize this last point quickly. Confess Jesus, the glorious king. John is going to go on now and he's going to, he's going to explain how the, the overwhelming response to Jesus was unbelief. See this in verses 37 to 46. This is why Jesus weeps as he enters Jerusalem. He weeps as he enters Jerusalem because most people don't believe in him. I'm not sure if we should call this the triumphal entry or if we should call it the tearful entry or both. But Jesus is weeping for people because they don't recognize and believe in Jesus. They don't believe in him. Despite doing so many signs before them, verse 37 this fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, who John says saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him, verse 41. But look at this. We read in verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus or believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? Verse 43, Because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved man's glory more than God's glory, and so they would not openly confess Jesus. We're very much like them. I want to say to us, we are more like them than we are unlike them. We wrestle as Christians today with cowardice, Afraid to confess Christ. Afraid to live boldly and to speak the truth publicly. 
We're afraid of what we will lose and what we will suffer. Me too. Much of that is driven by a desire for man's approval. We don't want to offend anyone. But all that is is just another way of saying man's glory is more important than God's glory. The world needs our witness because they need Jesus Christ. So don't be a secret believer. Don't be a closet Christian. Confess Christ. Do so openly. Do so publicly, boldly. Do not fear man. Fear the Lord. It leads me to ask this final question of us. Whose glory will I live for? Man's or Jesus's? Confess Jesus the glorious King. Love His glory more than man's, no matter the cost. Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees because they didn't want to lose their place of power. And deep down, we all want to be king of our own lives. In a very real sense, we can feel like Jesus threatens our power and position too because, because he wants to rule our lives as king. And we think that if we surrender control to Jesus, then we're going to lose out. We're going to miss out on some joy or some fun, and his rules are going to be too constraining for us, and we're going to, we're going to lose in this equation. But Jesus surprises those who come to him by faith. Those who come to Jesus by faith find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and he gives rest for your soul. They find that there is more for us in Christ than there is without him. They find that there is significance and purpose in life. They find that there is true joy and lasting hope and eternal life and full satisfaction that you cannot have any other way than in Jesus Christ. And when you see, when you see Jesus Christ for who he is, then you want to sacrifice your life for him. You want to serve and follow him. You want to give your life for him, for this king who gave it all for you. You want to serve him. You can't conceive of a life not lived for him. No matter what he says or where he sends you, no matter what the consequences or the cost, we cannot serve two masters. There can only be one king in your life. You or Jesus Christ, and I am telling you that Jesus Christ is a far better king than you could ever be for yourself. So hail him as your king. Trust him. Follow him. Confess him. This is how we glorify Christ the king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what can we say but thank you and praise you for who you are and what you've done. And God, I just pray that you would capture our heart's affection and our mind's attention with who you are. Help us to see and savor you, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see and savor you so that we would live our lives for you and for your glory. Lord, we ask that today. In Jesus' name, amen.